Right. Well, if we were in India, I would begin the evening by saying not just welcome, but Jai Bim. I know some people have heard that before. Uh, was anyone here on the visit of the Indian Dharmacharanis a few weeks ago? It was on a Wednesday evening. I don't know. I'm not sure if any of you were here. Yes, you were. Yes. Um, do you remember one of the Dharmacharanis saying what Jai Bim meant to her? You know, that it meant freedom and it meant uh, development and enlightenment and uh, equality and many, many other qualities. Its literal meaning, well, roughly, is uh, victory to Dr. Ambedkar, Dr. Babaseb Ambedkar. And that's what I'm going to sh- share with you tonight. Uh, am I all right standing here? You can see me okay? Yeah, and hear me okay? Right, well, I'll, tell, I'll start with a, a bit of a reminiscence about... Um, when I very first came along to the FWBO, that was in Accrington, yes, which you may or may not have heard of, um, in uh, 1986, uh, 21 years ago, um, I uh, very quickly heard um, that uh, there was the FWBO in England, uh, in Europe, in the West, if you like, and there was uh, something called TBMSG, in India, which was the same movement, and that actually it was probably growing faster in India than it was here. And I was immediately intrigued by this for all sorts of reasons. There were various personal reasons, uh, family reasons. I won't go into those a lot, but um, there were things like that. Um, But there was something deeper that I didn't quite understand, which made me very excited that uh, this movement that I thought, oh, this is right for me, was also flourishing and thriving in India. So I soon read this book, because I thought this would tell me all about it, by Sangrakshita, called Ambedkar and Buddhism. And to be quite honest, it didn't grab me. (laughs) It didn't really. Um, It was interesting, but, you know, it didn't grab me like some of his, his readings, uh, some of his writings do. Um, all sorts of questions came up for me, like, uh, who was this man? You know, who, who was this man? Um, why was he so important to Indian Buddhists? And what had he got to do with us Western Buddhists? Why did he become a Buddhist? Um, what about all the political shenanigans that went on around Dr. Ambedkar and that he was involved in? I wasn't interested in political shenanigans. Um, as um, an ex-trade union activist, and left-winger and things like that, I got quite disillusioned with politics and uh, didn't want to know about that. Uh, why did Dr. Ambedkar see Gandhi as an opponent? You know, everybody knows Gandhi is a wonderful man. Uh, what was Sangrakshita's relationship to Ambedkar? Well, over the years, I I found a lot of answers to these questions, and I'd like to share some of them with you um, tonight. Not not all of them, but um, just some of them. But this interest in Dr. Ambedkar came into a new focus for me over the last year. Because this man, 
Dr. Ambedkar, um, a very strong and eminent Indian statesman who came from a very low caste background, which in India is very much more serious than anything like that is here. That, um, that this man, uh, who meant so much to people in India, was now, uh, well, interest in him was becoming even stronger. Because it was the 50th anniversary of his conversion, which was very shortly followed by his death. Uh, that was in um, at 90, uh, 2006. And extraordinary things were happening in India because of Dr. Ambedkar's jubilee, as they called it. Um, which, were, which was that many other Buddhists were becoming, uh, and many other people from poor backgrounds were becoming Buddhist. Sorry, I, I'm trying not to jump ahead of myself, that's why I hesitate sometimes. Uh, there's so much to say. Um, this, these events, these conversions to Buddhism in India, uh, seem to me of quite overwhelming significance. <coughs> Um, in my personal life as a Buddhist and also as a world citizen. Um, I'm someone who cares deeply for the future of the planet. Uh, that's one of the main reasons I'm a Buddhist. Um, and I see the Buddha Dharma, which I embraced all those years ago, um, as a great influence for good in the world. In fact, uh, it affects me so much that I'm actually uh, going to India to do something about it um, on the 1st of January for a month. So I want to, to share this with you, this enthusiasm and interest that I have and um, try and share with you how important I feel it is. So what we'll talk about tonight, what was that? won't be just me talking, I hope, but I hope that you'll... Feel free to ask questions and join in. We'll be doing a bit of uh, talking to each other as well as me just, just me talking. Um, I particularly like cheeky questions, you know, like, what's this got to do with us? That sort of question. I really like those. Just warning you. So what we'll do is I'll try and tell you a bit about uh, Dr. Ambedkar and his significance for millions of poor people. And then I'll tell you about, um, or we'll talk about, uh, Bhante Sangharakshita's connection with him and his followers. Uh, and the continuing involvement of our movement, that's the FWBO stroke TBMSG in India. Thirdly, I'll try and bring out the connections between Buddhists in India and our own interests in Buddhism. We're Buddhists, so are they. Fourthly, I'll try to communicate a vision of the global significance of this surge of interest in the Buddha Dharma in India and how you can help to nurture it if you want to. How you can help. So, Dr. Ambedkar. Dr. Ambedkar, of whom you see a picture here and a couple of pictures on the shrine, 
And you will see everywhere in India pictures and um, <coughs> statues of him uh, in an almost sort of godlike status in front of you. Um, you know, it's a bit like statues of Queen Victoria used to be here, but uh, far more of them, and they've often got garlands around them and people pay homage to them and so on. Uh, he was born in 1891 into a family of untouchables. Do come in. Yes, please. You'd be comfortable. Um, now, I'm sure you've heard this word before, and you're probably more or less aware of uh, that um, untouchables in India um, were, often still are, the lowest of the low and the poorest of the poor in a country where to be poor is very poor, is to be very poor indeed. So, just before I tell you some more about him, I wonder if it would help me when I'm telling you about him, if I know a bit about what you know already, if anything. Has, has anyone not heard of him before? Anyone not heard of him before? Oh, so you all have. Did you hear about him before you got you came along to the centre? No, there's quite a few head shakings there. No. And yet he's incredibly important in Indian history. And important in world history, really. Has anyone any idea why he was such a significant figure in India? Thank you. Yes, that is indeed a good summary. Um, that he encouraged many of his followers to become Buddhists. Sorry, I'm repeating it for the mic. Um, and so they became uh, classless or castless, uh, which wouldn't have otherwise been the case. Yes, that is a very important point. Yes, good. Yeah, so we know a bit about him, yeah? And some people obviously uh, quite a bit, quite a lot. Um, but generally, he's a bit too a mysterious figure, isn't he? Yes, go on. You don't count, by the way. <laughs> I just want to, uh, it's a good point, mm. I just want to differentiate, differentiate between classless and casteless. Mm. Because in this society, we can change class, like we can change jobs, like we can change houses, areas that we live in. In India, you're born in a caste and you'll die in a caste, according to the Hindu scripture. And, and you can't move up or down. You can't, and you're not allowed to intermarry. So if you're... Uh, of a caste that's not that's impure, then you'll always your children will be impure as well. Thanks, Amit Shuri. Yeah, I think they might pick that up. Let all that. Thank you. Good. So you can imagine what appalling odds um, this young boy had to face um, uh, in order to better himself, but he was determined that he should. Uh, his father was employed by the British Army, I think that's right, um, and so this gave him a, a little bit of an extra start. But he obviously wanted the best possible for his, uh, his family and his son. And anyway, it's a long story, but against appalling odds, um, the young Ambedkar became highly educated uh, with an American and European education, uh, highly qualified with a, a number of, of doctorates, a barrister, you know, a very, um, very competent, very 
extraordinarily talented, actually, uh, practicing barrister. But still, in India, he, he was regarded by the vast majority as a pariah, an outcast, because he was an untouchable, and you don't change, yeah? No matter how well qualified, how competent, how extraordinary, how talented you are, talent has, doesn't make any difference. In fact, he eventually became law minister in Nehru's cabinet after independence in 1947. And he was still treated incredibly badly by caste Hindus. Um, he was, in, in fact, for other, other reasons as well, he was cast into the political wilderness. I'm not going into detail about all these because Dr. Ambedkar's life is very interesting and very detailed. We know a lot about it. So um, there's some publications which I'll point you to. But uh, just to give you an outline... Anyway, Dr. Ambedkar had, uh, had an insight. He had a sort of road to Damascus moment, um, a blinding flash, where he realised that uh, the millions of untouchables in India could not gain freedom or dignity within the Hindu caste system, which was reinforced by the Hindu religion. So... They must change their religion. That was a big step and a, a huge decision. And it took him many, many years to make it, well, to decide how to do it. And in fact, to decide which religion to go for, because he considered them all. But shortly before his death in 1956, he and half a million of his followers publicly embraced Buddhism as a means to self-betterment and social reform. Now I'm going to ask, I think it's Christine, is it, to yes, read? Star. Yes, to read um, something from uh, Sangrakshita's book, um, this one, In the Sign of the Golden Wheel, which um, gives Sangrakshita's message to Dr. Ambedkar's newly converted followers. Um, yeah, with these half million people who follow in his footsteps. In these days when there is so much lip sympathy for Buddhism and so little real devotion, it is a refreshing and stimulating contrast to find a great national leader boldly breaking away from outworn creeds and obsolete dogmas and openly taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. Even if Dr. Ambedkar stood alone today, his conversion to Buddhism would be an event of epochal significance, but he does not stand alone. With him on this historic occasion are tens of thousands of his devoted followers, bent upon emulating his noble example. With him are truth, justice and compassion. With him as he stands with his face towards the glorious son of Buddhism, as once more it arises upon this land, are all those mighty spiritual forces which elevate the human mind and conduce to true progress. With him is the future of India. Thank you. Thank you, Christine. So that was writing back in 1956 from our own teacher, Sangharakshita, um, that was, well, 
it puts incredibly clearly the significance of Dr. Ambedkar's actions at that time. And it's also incredibly prophetic, as we'll see later. That bit about the future of India, I've never really noticed it before. But actually, that's, well, the main reason that I'm talking to you tonight, actually. It's about the future of India. Um, so, there was a long connection between Sangrakshita and Dr. Ambedkar. And the FWBO, our own Buddhist movement, and um, TBMSG. Now, I'm going to sort of take a little sidetrack, it sounds like here, and tell you a story, uh, which is the story of uh, my friend Mani Dhamma who lives in Birmingham at the moment. Um, someone I'm getting to know and becoming closer to, someone I admire very deeply. Um, he's an order member. He's Indian, an ex-Dalit, or uh, as the untouchables are called now. And particularly his family I'd like to tell you about. Mani Dhamma is a really, really lovely guy. One of my favourite people. Um, he's very, very kind, very impressive person, very modest, uh, very effective, an effective teacher, an effective friend, an effective person. He's a very dedicated Indian member of our own order. Um, I'm not quite sure how old he is. I've not asked him. Uh, he he looks about sort of early 40s, late 30s. Do, do you know? Not sure. Is he, right, so late 30s, yes, yeah. Very mature for his years. And uh, we've, we've spent some time together and um, hopefully we'll spend more time together in India. But last weekend I was on a course where he told the story of his life and I'm sure I've heard it before but it's, it's really shocking. Um, well, the story of his family. Because Manidama's parents, not his grandparents, his parents were bonded labourers. Now, you know, this reminds us of feudal times, I suppose. Um, but this was this youngish man's parents. They were, they were slaves, yeah? Because they belonged to the caste that they belonged to, the low caste, the... Um, outside caste or outcasts that they belong to. They had to do things like um, when it was a market day and the uh, caste Hindus were taking their uh, produce to market, they would say, come. And his father had to go by running beside the cart that was taking the uh, produce to market. And, of course, staying there however long he was needed and then running back again. Uh, they lived in squalid huts outside the village. They weren't allowed to live in the village. They couldn't drink the same water and all these horrors of caste. But his father was, was different. He was deeply inspired by Dr. Ambedkar's conversion. I, I even thought that uh, Mani Dhamma said he was present, but he must have been very young if he was present. Maybe he got this enthusiasm from his father or... Um, someone in his family. 
Uh, but anyway, he was obviously an incredibly determined character. I think he's still alive. I'd love to meet him, actually. He must be amazing. Um, he was determined to get education and betterment for his family. So um, Manidana's uh, elder brother, I think he had a number of brothers, uh, was educated at a college set up by Dr. Ambedkar's followers. Um, and he ended up by becoming a collector. Now, I don't know how much you... you this is a sort of familiar word to those of you who have read novels about India. But a collector is a big deal. It's a bit, it's a bit like being the sort of governor-come-tax tax collector uh, for a province. For, for somebody from his background, absolutely astonishing. But um, uh, Mani, all the same, Manidama, when he was young, he suffered caste prejudice very directly. You know, people refusing to touch him, playmates refusing to come near him, refusing to let him into their houses, prejudice at school. And, you know, this is in the last few years. Um, and it's very confidence-sapping. Um, Mani Ram is a confident man, but sometimes you can see his confidence drain away. He said, you know, that's what happens sometimes when I think about it, you know, when certain things get to me. But he came to um, TBMSG, to the FWBO in India, and became an order member. Uh, he was ordained quite a while ago. And he lived in London, near the London Buddhist Centre. And I got to know him, I think, through my brother, Asangashila, who was also involved with India. My brother's another story. He died um, in um, 2002 uh, of lung cancer. Um, so he never spent the time in India that he hoped to. But uh, he, he and Manidama were friends. And uh, the last uh, time I came across uh, Manidama, he was uh, just finishing his uh, Dharma Dutta course. There's a, a, a college in Birmingham, uh, a Dharma teaching college uh, run by our movement, and they have a group of people called uh, Dharma Dutas, who are Dharma Dutta students. That meant that they were dedicating themselves to learning and spreading the Dharma, particularly where it was most needed and among people with the most difficulties. So, in December, Manidama is going back to India uh, to help spread the Dharma to people living like his family did. And I said, um, how long are you going for? He said, for good. Yes, we talked about other things, but that'll be the subject of another talk. So, this path, the reason I've told you this story, is that a path, a path to enlightenment, opened up for Manidama. And it was opened up by <coughs> Dr. Ambedkar, and it was kept open by Sangharakshita, by Bhante Sangharakshita and his followers. So here we'll have another reading from Nigel, which is um, showing the first instance of how Sangharakshita kept this uh, path open by addressing Dr. Ambedkar's followers who were in, in despair immediately after his death. Because after he converted to Buddhism with his followers, he died only, well, just over six weeks later. And this describes the first meeting that um, Sangharakshita had with them after Dr. Ambedkar's death. Thanks, Nigel.
the condolence meeting was held at Kind Church in Park, which was little more than a large open space, part of which was occupied by a small pavilion. Roads apparently debauched from debauched into it from a number of directions. For on my arrival there at seven o'clock, by which time night had fallen, it was the dark centre of a gigantic wheel, the golden spokes of which were formed by the lighted candles carried by the long columns of mourners, who were converging on the place from all over the city. As the columns entered the park, I saw that the men, women and children carrying the candles were all clad in white, the same white that only seven weeks ago they had worn for the conversion ceremony. Whether on account of their demoralised state or because there was not enough time, the organisers of the meeting had done little more than rig up the microphone and light speakers. There was no stage, and apart from the petrol marks or two, no illumination other than that provided by the thousands of candles. By the time I rose to speak, standing on the seat of a rickshaw, and with someone holding the microphone up in front of me, about a hundred thousand people had assembled. Under normal circumstances, I would have been the last speaker, but on this occasion I was the first. In fact, as things turned out, I was the only speaker. Though some five or six of Ambedkar's most prominent local supporters, one by one, attempted to pay tribute to their departed leader, they were so overcome by emotion that after uttering only a few words, they burst into tears and had to sit down. Their example was contagious. When I started to speak, the whole vast gathering was weeping, and sobs and groans filled the air. In the cold blue light of the petrol maps, I could see grey-haired men rolling in agonies of grief at my feet. Though deeply moved by the sight of such so much anguish and despair, I realised that for me at least, this was no time to indulge in emotion, and Bedkar's followers had received a terrible shock. They had been Buddhists for only seven weeks, and now their leader, in whom their, 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 their trust was total, and on whose guidance in the difficult days ahead they had been relying, had been snatched away. Poor and illiterate, as the vast majority of them were, and faced by the unrelenting hostility of the caste Hindus, they did not know which way to turn, and there was a possibility of the whole movement of conversion Buddhism would come to a halt or even collapse. I therefore delivered a vigorous and stirring speech, in which, after extolling the greatness of Medcar's achievement, I exhorted my audience to continue the work he had so gloriously begun and to bring it to a successful conclusion. Baba Sahib was not dead, but alive. To the extent that they were faithful to the ideals of which he stood for and for which he had quite literally sacrificed himself, he lived on in them. This speech, which lasted for an hour or more, was not without effect. 
and Bedcast-stricken followers began to realise that it was not the end of the world, that there was a future for them, even after their beloved Barbara Said's death, and that the future was not altogether devoid of hope. While I was speaking, I had an extraordinary experience. Above the crowd there hung an enormous presence. Whether the presence was Ambedkar's departed consciousness hovering over the heads of his followers, or whether it was the collective product of their thoughts, at that time of trial and crisis I do not know, but it was as real to me as the people I was addressing. In the course of the next few days, I visited practically all the untouchable localities of Nagpur, of which there must have been several dozen, and addressed nearly 30 mass meetings, besides initiating about 30,000 people into Buddhism and delivering lectures at Nagpur University and Ramakrishna Mission. Thanks, Nigel. That's a Again, from in the sign of the golden wheel, a very dramatic evocation of that scene, which was repeated many times over the next few days. I think he gave something like 30 talks in three days, and he said by the end of it he was as fresh as when he'd started, that he was so inspired by it. So you see there is a very direct connection between the teacher who caused this place to be here, caused us to be here, and uh, Dr. Ambedkar, which still goes on, and has gone on ever since. Um, As many of you will know, um, in uh, the early 60s, Sangrakshita actually went back to England to found the FWBO to start a new Buddhist movement here. But um, when he had got it going, he uh, sent his followers, some of his followers, over to India, most notably um, Lokamitra, whom you might have heard. Uh, I've got some information out there which you're willing to take on your way out um, about some of Lokamitra's projects. And for women, particularly at the moment, Karen Amaya, who came with the two visiting Dharmacharinis uh, who came a few weeks ago. So, there is... Um, a very direct connection between uh, between Dr. Ambedkar and our own teacher. Um, now, where was I? Yes. So, um, Sangharakshita and his followers kept alive the Buddhist movement in India, which flourishes to this day, and it's poised to have a much greater effect. The Buddhist movement in India is poised to have a much greater effect than it has so far uh, through people like Manidama, whose story I just told you, and me and you, if you feel so inclined. Um, again, to emphasize the connection between Sangharakshita and Dr. Ambedkar, I actually met Sangharakshita in this weekend that I was on uh, last weekend. Um, and uh, I told him that I was giving a talk about Dr. Ambedkar uh, to Sanganite, um, to uh, Buddhists here. And I, I said, what do you think I should talk about? You know, do you, have you got any ideas? What do you think uh, would be a good thing to talk about? 
And he said, well, hmm, how long are you going to talk? In India, we usually talk for about two or three hours. I said, no. <laughs> um, so he was trying to think, I think, of an important point, which was that um, these are new Buddhists in India. These are new Dharma followers. And so are we. Yeah? We are new Buddhists. There is a connection between us. And he suggested that I might try and bring out that connection. So I'll try and give you a feeling of what my feeling is for that, really, which you may or may not feel. So just to... Um, let's see how much time we've got. Good. Uh, put us in the mood for this. Maybe you'd just like to spend um, a few minutes just sort of quietly reflecting on why you became interested in Buddhism in the first place. Was it in any way a promise of a better life or a better way of being? And if you wish, we can share that with each other. So if we'll just have a, a quiet thing for a few minutes, a bit of a reflection. Well, um, I've met a lot of Indian Buddhists from all sorts of backgrounds, um, but uh, particularly people who come from very difficult backgrounds. Um, some of you may know Ratnasagra, who comes to this uh, centre sometimes. Um, I saw the place where he was born and brought up. Uh, he comes from this uh, ex-untouchable background, and it was a tin box, you know, surrounded by well, uh, incredibly dirty and unhealthy and noisy environment. Ratnasagra studied and did very well, but when he was living in this tin box in India, uh, there would be radios blaring on all four sides. You know, how did he manage it? So just to give you a little flavour of the way that people have come, uh, what sort of background people have come uh, to Buddhism from, but they come for the same reasons. And what Dr. Ambedkar saw was that the most important thing about Buddhism was that it offered an ethical path that didn't depend on the punishment or reward of a creator god or a, a system like that. Um, and it was something which uh, meant that people um, were more compassionate to each other even though their circumstances are very difficult. And of course, his own life was a total exemplification of compassion. He, he, he gave his life to, to this, to uplifting his people and to uplifting them through an ethical path which Buddhism expressed. And, um, well, the reason that Sangharakshita was so inspired when he gave that talk that we've just been, those talks that we've just heard described, was that he realized that here was a mass, millions and millions of people who, potentially millions of people, there were thousands there in the, uh, in the meeting, who had become Buddhists and didn't know what it meant. They knew that Dr. Ambedkar had found something that would give their lives a deeper meaning, but they didn't know what it was. And that was why they felt so completely rudderless and despairing, really. So deeper meaning was very important. 
managing stress through meditation. It's amazing, really, how people in India manage to meditate under incredible conditions. You know, I mean, normally, well, we're here in this fairly quiet room. You know, we get a certain amount of noise from yoga upstairs and the odd shriek from the street. But it's hardly the same in um, Nagpur or Pune. Uh, it's very, very noisy. But people do really get into meditation. And also they go on retreat. It can be very difficult for them to go on retreat. But they find incredible peacefulness from the deep stress of their lives. Um, being with like-minded people and um, uh, living the same sort of life as them is, is a tremendous thing when you've been an outcast from your society. Uh, a simpler life. Well, I mean, actually, for many of the... Um, the Dalit Buddhists in India. Um, Buddhism is meant actually uh, a simple but more fulfilling life. It, uh, the Buddha said, and many Buddhist teachers have said, that uh, before you practice the Dharma, you know, you need to have the basic necessities of life. And uh, being Buddhists has given a lot of poor people the confidence to uh, go out and get what they need to live a decent life even though it is quite simple. But it's, it's also um, a good life, a, a, a life with enough to eat and a decent income and not being treated like a, well, like a, a subhuman being. Um, people become centred. They do become more aware and, and kind. They become incredibly joyful, actually. The Indian Buddhists that I've seen are incredibly positive. You know, particularly considering the kind of life that they live. Uh, they study the Dharma. Um, again, it's very difficult. It's very difficult particularly for women to study the Dharma. You know, it's difficult for them to get out of the house, to be away from their families. Uh, my friend Karen Amaya, that I mentioned earlier, uh, is uh, wanting to start um, a women's retreat centre in um, near Pune, where I'm going to visit. And the, the men that she's talked to in the order have said, well, look, it's going to be really difficult uh, because safety is going to be such an issue. You know, it's going to have to be guarded by men with guns, this retreat centre. So you can see what she's up against. And she doesn't believe that either. You know, she's not going to be easily pushed into that way of thinking. But it, that maybe gives you a bit of a flavour for how much more difficult it is for women to study the Dharma in India and how the women's retreat centre is very, very important. Um, stability, safety and a refuge, I think that speaks for itself. And overcoming fears and anxieties. Well, you know, I mean, very much for the, um, the uh, Buddhists that I've met in India, what strikes you is their confidence. Um, I worked for a long time with... Um, uh, Asian families in Cheatham Hill, a lot of them from quite poor backgrounds, uh, mainly from Pakistan. And um, one of the things that struck me is that, well, particularly when they first arrive, they're just not very self-confident. And the contrast was really strong with the Indian Order members that I'd met. They were really strong, confident people. The Dharma gives confidence, gives great confidence. So... You know, there are many, many areas of um, similarity.
between us and, and them. So, um, the TBMSG, the movement the, uh, that, uh, that we've got involved with, uh, tries to offer these things to people in India and to support them. And it's often done by a social aspect. So, um, what has it, this got to do with us? Well, I think it's pretty obvious that we can actually, directly as Westerners, help this effort simply by being who we are. Yeah, we don't, in a sense, have to do anything. If people in India know that there are new Buddhists in England, yeah, or Europe or America, it just gives them a huge boost. Remember, these are people that come right at the bottom, of your, if you like, of the social pile in India, and that's the way they've been encouraged to see themselves for thousands of years. But there are more direct ways in which we can help them. There are many social projects among the people in slums in India um, which uh, are supported particularly by Buddhist groups, um, particularly the Karana Trust, which is a, a Buddhist um, charity which supports many projects among Buddhists and all sorts of people in India, uh, poor people in India. Also, not just um, the... Uh, low-caste people or outcast people, but what's called the tribal people who are also um, marginalised in society in India. And, um, well, many of these new Buddhists are gathering in numbers. There are many, many other people who want to follow in the path of Dr. Ambedkar's followers. And what they need is support and help. They need teachers so if any of you are interested in becoming now or in the future Dharma teachers or English teachers, yeah, it's, uh, there's plenty of opportunities there. Um, and of course, what is very welcome for all these projects is money. Um, a small amount of money in England goes a long way in India and can be uh, spent on giving people a much, much better life. So I put a special bowl out there if you want to put any dana in it, if you feel so inclined. Um, I think what we'll do is have a tea break now. Um, right, I said I'd um, finish off this evening by uh, sharing with you the vision of a number of people of how um, Indian Buddhists and Western Buddhists can change the world. Now... Um, I mentioned Dr. Ambedkar's 50th anniversary. Sorry, Mike, are you coming to join us? How Indian Buddhists and Western Buddhists can change the world. So Dr. Ambedkar's 50th anniversary, uh, which happened last year, um, there was a huge resurgence. Anniversaries seem to be very um, popular in India. You know, They seem to really mean something. It's like people reconnect with a meaning that maybe has become a bit sort of lost, you know, it's sort of, a momentum has been lost. Um, but the momentum really started to go again of people becoming interested in Buddhism by remembering Dr. Ambedkar. It's, it's really quite hard for me to express how important Dr. Ambedkar is to the, the, uh, the particularly the poor people in India. He, he, he represents, well, he represents his better life. 
Yeah. So he represents a saviour to them in a sense. Um, but the, uh, the momentum began to gather of more people wanting to become Buddhists in the wake of Dr. Ambedkar's example. And uh, I remember being very, very excited about this and uh, talking to various people in the movement about it who went out there, like Lokabandhu, who's, who's your friend, and um, um, Vishwapani. And they said, oh, it's a bit disappointing, you know, this, this Buddhist uh, revival. It doesn't seem to be happening. But actually, it's quite difficult to find out what is going on in India because there isn't the sort of... Uh, uh, infrastructure that we have here of information. But it soon emerged that people who had um, come to these various meetings and rallies and declared themselves to be Buddhists were actually very significant people. They tended to be community leaders. Some of them were from the south, Kerala, for example. Um, And uh, a lot of them were not low-caste people. They were from the higher castes. And a lot of them were tribal people. So it's like, you know, seeds have been sown. Seeds have been started. A lot of them were um, um, community leaders. And again, particularly in India, where community leaders uh, do something significant, like becoming Buddhist, other people in that community are very likely to follow. So there is now this sort of huge potential in India of people interested in Buddhism. And, um, well, a lot of people say, yes, but it's just political. You know, it's just a popular movement. But the thing about Indian Buddhists, I think I've tried to show, is that they're really eager for the Dharma. You know, they're not just um, doing it in order to follow blindly in somebody's footsteps or because they say that they should but they're really interested in what Buddhism is about well so I hear from people who've actually been among Buddhists in India that they're very very interested in the Dharma in fact uh, I'm quoting quite a bit here from um, Subhuti uh, uh, who's um, well he was for a while the head of our order of, of the order um, of the Western Buddhist order, and um, is still very, very active in India, uh, a very widely read, very wise, I think, um, committed Buddhist who's been in the movement for many, many years. And uh, so I'm quoting his words quite a lot, and, you know, I, I take them very seriously. He was saying that in every village in India there are potential Buddhists, you know, just as there are low-caste people or out-caste people. There are potential Buddhists in every village in India. That's a lot of people, millions of people. There's interest from other castes. And this is one of the most staggering things. This is the story of Ms. Mahawati. Uh, when I was in um, Lucknow um, uh, on pilgrimage in 2002, uh, we visited Lucknow for reasons I couldn't quite understand because um, well I didn't find it a very interesting place and it was very very dirty it was an unpleasant place to be because it was sort of it was even poorer than other places in India, it was sort of crumbling we went to this um, wonderful palace you know which was a a Muslim palace and it was sort of crumbling away you know rotting away 
People looked very, very poor. And there was a kind of violence in the air. And I spoke to a, an Indian friend about this. And she said, it's because it's a Muslim city. You know, the Hindus aren't interested in it. And they deprive it of uh, money. You know, there isn't enough money to run this city properly because it's mainly uh, inhabited by Muslims. But uh, there was a, an election going on. And we kept seeing pictures of this lady, you know, with a scarf over her head and uh, uh, various meetings that were going on, uh, loudspeakers and things. And this was Ms. Mahawati. And she is now governor of the state of the state which Lucknow is in, which is Uttar Pradesh, I think. Yeah, I think I'm right, Uttar Pradesh. And she is from a Dalit background, from uh, an ex-untouchable background. She's already made sure that there's a statue of the Buddha in every town in her state. And it's very likely that she will go on to become the president of India. The governor of Uttar Pradesh usually becomes president of India. And she says when she's made president, she'll become a Buddhist. So this is pretty strong stuff, isn't it? You know, that we could have a Buddhist president of India in the future. You know, whatever you, you think of that, it, it's obviously of enormous significance. And the other thing, of course, is that um, India, which so many people think of as a poor country, in fact, is, is no longer. It's rapidly becoming a very important player on the world stage economically, a world power, if you like. Um, so it could have a huge influence in the world. So it's as if the Buddhist renaissance in India has, you know, will send out shockwaves possibly to the whole <coughs> world. It's, it's the kind of thing that makes you sort of go, oh, it's so huge. And like Mike was just asking, you know, how do you teach millions of people about the Dharma? Um, how do you do it? Well, big question. Um, it needs huge resources to communicate the Dharma to all these people in India. Um, I'm not quite sure where this quote is from, but it, it requires huge quantities of people and money from the old Buddhist world. Um, Sabuti is aiming to have 10,000 trained people every year to teach the Dharma in India. How is this going to be achieved? Um, in Kerala, um, where Shudi comes from, um, again, I'm quoting Sabuti, he said, there are 300,000 people there who are ready and interested in conversion. What will we give them? Well, big question. Um, this is why I'm going to India in January. I'm uh, going to look at teacher training for people who are already teaching the Dharma there and see how we can improve their effectiveness uh, by whatever support we can give them from the West. Mainly that support, I think, will consist in encouraging, encouraging them to use their own, own talents, the ones that they already have. We have some very talented Dharma teachers in India who already speak the language, you know, which we don't. Um, and we want to give them as much support as we can, you know, by teaching methods and um, a curriculum and um, money support. There is this uh, plan which we have um, which I'm trying to spread around chapters you know, groups of order members in, in uh, Manchester and well all the west uh, in England America, Europe 
um, to support a dharmachari or dharmacharini for maybe five years. The thing is, to live in India costs very little. And if we give, you know, a five or a month as a group, say a group of, I don't know, five people or <coughs> ten people, um, we can support somebody to be a Dharma teacher, a sort of sponsorship idea. Um, for example, there are uh, a number of women Dharma teachers in India whom I'm particularly interested in, who are very good, but they're under a sort of treble burden, really, you know, of being um, a woman and from a poor background. And also, uh, they have to look after their families. You know, most of them have families. Most women in India are, are married. Um, and they also have jobs to support the family. Uh, many women work now. So, you know, they've got those three things. So how can they be Dharma teachers? So if we gave them a certain amount of financial support that was reliable, and it wouldn't, from a group of people, be an awful lot of money, then they could they'd be full-time Dharma teachers, at least for a certain period of time. So this is something that I'm trying to get going. So, if anybody wants to help, or they're interested in getting involved in any way, I'd really like to hear from you. Yeah. Or if you know anybody else, you know, you might know some young person who wants to go out to India and do something really good, or you might know someone who's interested in Buddhism and would be like to be involved. We were just talking to Steve Hodgson Ridgway, who wants to go to India on a retreat and wants to build things. Yeah, he wants to be a builder out there, which is fantastic. So I'll just end my talk by saying, if you're interested, please get in touch with me. Um, where's my best pen? There it is. This is my email address. Shakyajata at googlemail.com I'd ask you of course to be sensitive who you give it to but you know you're very welcome to have it and here's my home phone number Or you can always get hold of me through reception. So, you know, if anybody wants to contact me about this, or they think they know someone who might be interested, please do. Right, so that's the end of what I wanted to say. Does anybody want to ask any questions? There are quite a few in the. Yeah. Sorry, how? Did you say how many, you said he was in a Buddhist for six mm. weeks and then yeah. he died? Yeah, and then he died. So did I miss, did you say? No, I didn't, no. No, someone asked me about this. Um, I'm not very sure what he actually died of. I think it was possibly exhaustion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he'd, um, he'd lived an incredibly intense life against terrible prejudice and thrown himself just totally wholeheartedly into helping his people and um, he'd had enormous successes and then towards the end some terrible failures um, he brought up the Hindu he, he, he devised this um, well the, the 
constitution. He helped to devise the constitution of newly independent India. And one of the things that was really dear to his heart was the Hindu Code Bill, which was basically, um, well, it was based on the ideals of Buddhism, actually, on liberty, equality, and fraternity, particularly equal rights for women, property rights for women. And he brought it before Congress, and Nehru wouldn't back it. You know, he was Nehru's law minister, and Nehru wouldn't back it. And he was just became completely dis- disillusioned. It, it made him feel, you know, he felt as if he was in the wilderness after all these years of giving his life, all his energy, all his time to this. He'd been ill for quite a while. He suffered very badly from arthritis. Now, I don't know if arthritis kills you, but maybe he had some sort of heart disease as well. I'm not absolutely sure what he died of. In fact, there, were, there was talk of, a, a, you know, of, of foul play. But from, um, from Bante's description uh, of, of him a few weeks before the conversion, um, he was already a very, very sick man. I think he just really wore himself out. Yeah. yeah. Right. So did that help him to sort of go away, get educated, and then come back, rather than working his way up internally? It's yeah. It wouldn't have been possible in the Indian system. No, it wouldn't. And of course, um, a Western education carried great status. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you, you've really hit on something there. Actually, it, it's it's really important. One of the things that. Um, that Ambedkar was, which made him attracted to Buddhism, was he was a rationalist. He was very much a a sort of Western secular thinker, in a sense, Uh, a bit like Dr. Johnson, if you like. You know, he had that sort of enlightenment outlook that um, nothing you do should conflict with reason. Although at the same time, he was a deeply religious and very devotional man. But uh, that was probably what, one of the things that attracted him to Buddhism as opposed to Christianity, for example. Sorry, just say again. Most of the Indian, top Indian people were Western educated. Possibly. Gandhi, Possibly. Mm. Mm. Well, I don't know about Gandhi, actually. Yeah. Yes. I'm not sure about Gandhi. Well, Gandhi came over. Yes, he came for political meetings, whether he was educated here, well, I don't he, know. He studied, he studied Did he? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, it would be a, a very Indian thing to do, yeah. But it certainly influenced, um, I mean, Ambedkar spent a lot of time in the West. You know, he was educated not only here in London and in Columbia University in the States, he was also uh, educated in uh, Europe. You know, he got a number of doctorates very, very talented man. It was as if he had to get, you know, five times as many qualifications as anybody else in order to make any headway in well, India. Yes, yes, very much like that. Yeah, yeah. Else yeah. To the yes, yeah, yeah. It was like that. Yeah, yeah. But and when he came back... Um, even his office junior wouldn't go near him, you know, because he was untouchable. Yeah. Incredible, it's isn't it? Hard to it's hard to imagine, imagine. isn't it? Mm. 
Yeah, it's hard to other sort of major political figures who would have presumably been caught up in the kind of Hindu-Muslim divide, the nationalism, all the issues around partition, everything that was kind of thrown up really as a result of that. So, you know, was he actually seen as a threat? Was he seen as a threat? By other kind of major sort of political thinkers who oh, had previously yes. been the way would have previously been alive to him, but Oh, yes, yeah. I mean, they saw him as undermining the whole fabric of society. In fact, that's what Gandhi thought. You know, he thought that um, Ambedkar's opposition to caste was um, undermining. But, of course, Ambedkar saw his, uh, Gandhi's view as totally undermining any possibility of, of dignity for the untouchables because they were outside the system. How could they expect the system to make things better for them? So, mm, yeah, they were opponents. Yeah. I thought. Hmm? I know that Gandhi was against. Uh, he was, was against untouchables. So, so he said, yeah, but he wasn't against the caste system. There was this sort of contradiction in his view. He thought by, um, well, in fact, um, people who were. Uh, who were untouchables, he called them Harijans, children of God. But it was just a name. <laughs> you know, things were still the same. And um, it, it, it's, it's a big topic, you know, and it's quite, quite difficult to go into. But um, what Ambedkar saw was that being a Hindu wasn't going to save people because Hinduism had this caste system so deeply built into it. Um, even if there were many enlightened Hindus who didn't believe that. It was still deeply ingrained in the views of people. And they were the, they were the ones who the, the untouchables had to live in, you know, the village people, the people um, who gave out jobs. And it, there's, there still is an enormous sort of um, right-wing Hindu power in India that really holds the reins of power. This is why Mrs. Mahawati's um, election is staggering, quite astonishing that it should have happened at all. I think it's interesting what's been happening today, isn't it, about 25,000 people walking to New Delhi and sitting down quietly in the square and saying, we're sitting here to change things. Really? I've not yeah. heard about that. This is, you know, the, the, um, the peasants who, or the... Yeah. the with the equivalent of the peasants with, with land that they farm and their families for hundreds of years, but they have no paper deeds for Right. And so right. the government just comes in, takes the land, and gives mm. it to commercial operations to build really? factories on. Mm. And these people are left with nothing. Gosh. gosh. So, mm. And you can guess who yeah. they are. Yeah. So they've now been walking for 30 days, and then they've just sat there, really? 25,000 of them, and the government just said, yes, we will. Now, whether they will, but they have said, we will mm. look at this and fix it. You know, and they were saying, they actually said, we are, this is, this is a Gandhi type. You know, we're, we're making a peaceful A peaceful, protest. Ra- yeah, a peaceful protest, yeah, Satyagraha. Yeah. It's interesting how the parallels with Scotland 400 years ago, when uh, the indigenous people were thrown off the land, it was all given to the lairds, mm. and then they were transplanted into Northern Ireland. Yes. So similar things happen yeah. around the world, which is yeah. a different. Um, 
Yes, it's extraordinary that it should happen in a modern, rich city-state, isn't it? Yeah, that it should still be happening. But, I mean, you know, India is in this process of, of revolution, you know, of, of peaceful revolution. engaged Buddhists in the sense of getting involved in the, in the politics um, of India which at times are very violent and kind of like you know what what if they bring a, a dimension of non-violence to that they kind of like well, yes. how do they see yeah. do they see political involvement as part of their Buddhism or is it entirely is it a rejection for kind of like political solutions to better, to better people's lives Yes, uh, this was, I mean, um, one thing I'd like to recommend to you is that you might like to read some of Dr. Ambedkar's stuff, uh, particularly um, he's written a book called The Buddha and His Dhamma, which is uh, very much directed towards explaining Buddhism for his followers. And uh, one of the things, of course, that he ad- advocates is ethics, and the first Buddh- Buddhist ethics is uh, ab- you know, non-harming, not, not killing so uh, he was very insistent to his followers that they shouldn't use violence. He, he, he didn't call it Satyagraha, which was Gandhi's term, um, but you know, he called it uh, the, the teaching of, of my Lord Buddha is, is non-violence. That was but what he based it on. He also wanted people to challenge the system. Yes, but not violently. So it's Assertively, but not violently. It's political in that you are saying, I'm not happy with the status quo, even if you're not prepared to fix it. Yes. And I was thinking, well, I think it's a worldwide problem of Mm. the growing Mm. global fundamentalism that's occurring across the world in different forms. Yes. And about the role Mm. of Buddhists generally in terms of finding a solution to that. Yes. Because that seems to be one of the human one of the big issues about yeah. what do we do about fundamentalism in all its forms. Yes, yes. Do we, yeah. do we as Western Buddhists specifically stand in some sense against all of that? Yes, yeah. Explicitly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that we're actually looking to another way of transacting things politically. Well, it's certainly why I'm a Buddhist, you know, because Buddhism seems to have built into it anti-dogmatism in fact if as a Buddhist you hold a view um, too tightly it becomes a wrong view it becomes a dogma it becomes anti-Buddhist really and um, well that's why teaching people is so important because they do have a sort of grasp of this but they're open to learning more about it more about um, a way of self-betterment that isn't about um Fundamental fundamentalist violence. Yeah. Instead of becoming suicide bombers, you know, they want to follow the path of the Dharma. And well, you know, you, you people whose lives are so hopeless, you couldn't really blame them for being violent. Want to take a different path? Mm. It's incredibly well, wonderful, really. Yeah, it's what inspires me about it. Yeah. 
got mm. very excited with both Nigel's questions. The first mm. one about politicians, mm. uh, and the second one about in, engaged Buddhists in India. Um, the, the, I'll not address the first one, I can talk to you later, mm. but engaged Buddhists uh, in relation to being inspired by Dr. Ambedkar. Well, last year, last not November, October just passed, the previous one, there was an international conference in Nagpur, which is the site of the conversion 50 years ago. There's a, a, an international network of engaged Buddhists, INEB conference, and it, it gathered people from all over the world, including the Dalai Lama who came, but Buddhists from all over the world who came to Nagpur. To, and the theme was Dr. Ambedkar as a social activist. And I was very fortunate to be able to attend. And here, how some people in other Buddhist countries hadn't, Taiwan, Korea, other countries all over, hadn't been aware of the activism of, of Dr. Ambedkar and the, implica- the, uh, the impact he's had on the lives of so many millions of people. And it was, it was an appeal was made, like you're saying, to the, to the world, like, can you take his me- what he's done uh, out to your countries and, and, and keep that message alive? And, and it was really taken up. I mean, a lot of people have pledged and have actually... Taiwanese Buddhists actually gave a whole load of money for translation of Dharma books and they've been distributed from Pune. I mean, there's been a lot of impact from that international network of engaged Buddhist conference. Um, And one of the things that Shakyajata's recommended reading, uh, there's another one called Annihilation of Caste Mm. that Dr. Becker wrote in 1936. And he likens, well, he doesn't liken, but actually what he's writing, if we can annihilate is that the right word? If we can get yeah. rid of caste, mm. then actually, if we can see it like the Buddhist concept of the bodhisattva ideal, like to become a bodhisattva, do we think do we think that's possible? Is that possible? Do we believe that it's possible to re- to reach our potential as Buddhas um, and, and to have bodhisattva activity in the world? So to annihilate caste, sometimes you might think. Really, how is it possible with so much opposition and so many people trying to keep it in place? Well, actually, we can just look at the Bodhisattva idea and we can say, well, you know, we see it as possible in, in our actions. So, so he wrote that before he converted that. He wrote, I remember from somebody teaching me that in 1936, Dr. Ambedkar. So his activity has that message to the people who, who mm. revere him. Some people may be a bit more uh, fundamental in their actions, but there are the calm, the peace. It's called a peaceful revolution. Yes. Mm. The Dhamma mm. revolution is a peaceful revolution, it's mm. called in India. So mm. the, the, the strength of the message is always there. We go out and we do stuff with speed in our cars and we come back and go, oh, just broke the wall. And we come back here and we think, well, I'll try not to do that again. His message is there, and and, and not everybody knows it yet, but we can elucidate it. Thank you. You can see how excited Amish Shuri gets. I get just the same. (laughs) (laughs) Amish Shuri is involved in a project in Bodhgaya where the um, the Buddha gained enlightenment to develop the retreat centre there. 
Settled in, you know. You get, yeah. yeah, I think I'd be traumatized. That's good to have you here. Right, people, is it getting time to to wrap up? Yeah, no, anymore. Thank you. Thank you. Outworn creeds and obsolete dogmas, and openly taking refuge in the Bible. Yeah. Mm. Can you do that again? Shall I? Can I? Yeah. 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 Um, it's a refreshing and stimulating contrast to find a great national leader boldly breaking away from outworn creeds and obsolete dogmas, and openly taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Um, mm. Yeah. What were you asking? Sorry. I thought it was quite disparaging against the, perhaps the millions of innocent people who would practice Hinduism. Mm. And it's, it's really just the warrant of their background, their upbringing, bringing, etc., that they, they live by that dogma. There's not necessarily a conscious choice they make yes. to, yeah. to be mm. that way. I just thought it, was, uh, it didn't sound very Buddha like. Right. Um, Sangrakshita tends to be fairly outspoken, you know, when he when he believes something. But he isn't saying all Hindus are like this. You know, he's saying that he, he, breaking away from outworn creeds, you know, it doesn't mean that something worth, is worth believing in, that people aren't sincere, but that some things hold people back. You know, outworn means um, not useful to them anymore uh, in their development obsolete dogmas. I mean, there are many Hindus who don't believe in the caste system. Now, many in, in fact, Dr. Ambedkar wouldn't have got where he was if it hadn't been for enlightened Hindu help. Um, so, he's just saying that dogma as dogma that holds people back is to be cast away and, and done in a very practical way. Yes, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, he isn't saying that, you know, this, everything that these people believe is obsolete, but that if people do cling on to obsolete things and force, uh, force them on people in a way that holds them back, then that, that is not the true function of religion, I suppose he's saying. Yeah, yeah. I know he's, um, you know, he's not prejudiced against Hinduism. He's gone into it very carefully. Very deep thinker. But he does, yeah, he says, he, he shoots from the hip, you know, he does say what he means when he thinks that it will have a good effect on people. Yeah. And I don't think he whips up hatred either or prejudice. No. So, why are there guards around the women's refuge? How are they 
Is that just purely to protect the women from those who are Sorry, no. No, the, um, taking refuge in the Buddhist context. Hmm. No, taking refuge in the Buddhist context means becoming a Buddhist. Yeah. Hmm. With guns, right, yeah, yeah. What was that about? Um, well, it, it breaks down into quite a number of issues. It, the, the basic thing is that there's a, there's, there's a belief in Indian societies, there's in many societies, that women can't manage on their own. And that if they do stand up and they're on their own, there'll be trouble. Yeah. Well, to a certain extent it's true. You know, I mean, there is viol- there is a lot of violence against women in India, as there is here. Um, but it's also saying, don't bother to Karen Amaya, don't bother, you're doing something that's too difficult. But she's not going to be so easily put off by things like that. There's, there's also the aspect that, well, law enforcement is not so easy in India. You know, it's a very big country, there's an awful lot of people, there's not the infrastructure we have here. And, um, so if it was a man's yeah, would that also have armed guards? No. no, no, they wouldn't need to. Yeah, yeah. I was coming back to the, mm. the word that's used then, it was yeah. uh, the refuge is becoming Buddhist. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, Mm. No, I, yeah, yeah, it's really important to clarify things, yes, yeah, yeah. So who would be attacking women 10 years Sorry? So who would be attacking the women attending the centre? Such that they're being down. Lawless elements in society, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, um, yeah, there's bad people in India like there are anywhere else. Criminals and, uh, yeah. Rapists and murderers. So if it was a Hindu women's. Uh, sorry, to, if it was mm. a Hindu women's centre, would mm. that also need armed guards? I don't know. Mm. I honestly don't know. No, no, I don't. Well, there is, as I understand it, I might, but there is nothing to stop someone from being Hindu and Buddhist. Oh yes, there is. Yeah, mm. I think this is what Doctor Ambedkar was very careful to set out that Hinduism and Buddhism are different. I mean, if if Hinduism was the way to freedom that the Buddha saw, then there would have been no need for his life and his enlightenment. But uh, I was saying earlier that there's quite a lot of cultural similarity, but there are some deep differences. And the main one is caste. You were saying there must have been some enlightened Hindus to help him in his career. Yes. So not all Hindus are necessarily going to believe in caste. In aspects of the caste system. Yeah, it's difficult for them to break free of it, though. Uh, and in fact, some uh, Hindus who see that clearly uh, are more interested in Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, or become. Um, Rationalists, you know, they say they want to have nothing to do with religion at all. But it's deeply bred into the fabric of society. Um, I thought about something that you were saying about um, Hindu women being more protected. Hindu women would not be allowed to have a retreat centre. 
there is, uh, there is built within Hinduism um, a, a strong prejudice against women doing things on their own anyway. Yeah, there's gender caste as well. Yeah, in fact, um, in Hinduism, this is this is you know sort of uh, strict Hinduism. Um, women are, are not considered uh, are considered untouchable. You know they can't. But at the same time, caste is perpetuated by marriage. So there's a, <laughs> there's a whole nest of you know kind of worms there really. Yeah. But uh, it, yeah, I, I've seen, again, uh, the contrast with the, um, the Asian women that I've worked with in Cheatham Hill, you know, who were mainly um, from Pakistan or Bangladesh, and the, uh, the women that I've met in India who are Buddhists is total. You know, the, the amount... They're, they're, they're strong, independent women, and they're very, very impressive. And um, the Asian women that I've met in Britain are just, you know, very... F- totally family dominated I mean they can be very strong within the family but um, they don't have the confidence to branch out on their own yeah I think that's the answer to the question really Mm. it gives them a sort of inner confidence which is this is why I wanted the the Dharmacharanis to come here you know and meet some of you because they are fantastically impressive women you know as soon as you come within their presence you think gosh this is a big person something really happens when they take their own spiritual life in hand in that way fantastic people sponsor a dharmacharani <laughs> think about it maybe that's got something to do with the vitality and emancipation that Buddhism brings as opposed to kind of Islam or Hinduism or even Christianity so that's certainly fundamentalist sort of Christianity mm. of different sorts that it actually suppresses you might argue that it actually suppresses kind of potential it doesn't liberate it and, and even, even though it might claim to so mm. one of the arguments about becoming Buddhist to some extent is this kind of promise of, eman- of inner emancipation mm-hmm. and, of, and I think you know women in particular, that might be one of the most key issues of the whole. Mm-hmm. You know, to be who you can be. I would certainly because agree with you. Mm. those kind of systems by and large have their entire histories of being about suppressing people, telling people that they can't do this, controlling people. Yes, yeah. Historically. Mm. It's like I think sexuality has been kind of like controlled Yes. By mm. some religious dogma for centuries. I mean, okay, things are changing, but that might be one of the drivers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Spot on as far as I'm concerned. Right, everybody. Shall we? Shall we leave it there? Yeah, it's been lovely talking to you. Yeah, thank you. Jai Beam.